Welcome to the Precision Medicine Podcast, sponsored by Trapello. This is the podcast where experts come to discuss the problems oncologists, reference labs, and payers face as precision medicine grows and consider solutions for advancing the quality of patient-centered cancer care. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Precision Medicine Podcast. I'm Jerome Madison, Vice President of Provider Relations for Trapello and the host of the podcast. And today we are excited and delighted to have Dr. Jack West, Associate Clinical Professor at the City of Hope Comprehensive Cancer Center. Some of you may not be strangers to Dr. West. You may know him from or be one of his many 20 plus thousand Twitter followers or from his contributions to JAMA Oncology or Medscape. But we want to thank and welcome Dr. West for being a guest on the podcast. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Now, Dr. West, you, you recently, well, to kind of back up, you're at the City of Hope, but I followed you for some time, and I know those who are listeners who have followed you in the media for some time. You trained at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center in Seattle and practiced there at the Swedish Cancer Institute for several years. So, to me, in my mind, I still, when I hear that name, I, I think Seattle, you know. Um, but needless to say, your name is probably synonymous with those institutions. Now you're at City of Hope. Why the move? What What's your vision now as you step into your role there at City of Hope? Well, I had uh, been in Seattle for, as you say, uh, a little over 20 years. I had trained at uh, the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center in the University of Washington, great program, uh, and had uh, really developed my interest in thoracic oncology there before switching over to uh, nearby in Seattle, Swedish Cancer Institute, where I was for a little over 16 years and uh, was able to do a lot of great clinical research and, of course, uh, see patients and give excellent care. But for me, it was time for a change after doing uh, so much of uh, really the same thing for so long. And uh, I was looking into kind of second chapter kind of things to do uh, and potentially a change of scenery. I uh, uh, think Seattle's lovely, at least in the summertime, it's glorious, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, certainly uh, Southern California has its uh, appeals as a place to live if uh, depending on where you uh, what your commute is like. And so uh, I, I think that was an appeal, but also uh, City of Hope really was to me the big draw that uh, led me to come a little earlier than I was thinking about making a move. I was looking a few years into the future, but for me, the more I learned about City of Hope and uh, its momentum uh, growing, not just uh, local regionally, but uh, nationally and even internationally, and their growing program in remote consults and telemedicine services. To me, that was uh, the exciting opportunity. They were just so innovative and uh, and open to uh, developing new opportunities that I thought it was a great uh, time and, and chance for me to to practice medicine in a different way, especially as I, I just feel that uh, cancer care is at a challenging crossroads where the amount of information that molecular oncology introduces uh, now makes it 
just increasingly difficult for uh, general oncologists and really everybody to keep up with. So I think we need to come up with new models of how to deliver that care uh, and incorporate all this new information optimally. So Dr. West, I wanted to center our discussion around a commentary that you wrote on Medscape. I mean, you, you certainly contribute quite frequently, but this one was about a recent report by Flatiron and Foundation Medicine that analyzed over 4,000 patients in your area of expertise, non-small cell lung cancer. And the, the title of your commentary is, How Could We Fail So Miserably? And for those of you out there, it's May 16th on Medscape. You can go out and find that. But actually, the first person I heard talking about this was Dr. Jack Ramsey there uh, from the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center. But uh, a little background, it found that 50%, more than 50% of the patients who had an NCCN-recognized driver mutation, less than 50% were actually prescribed a targeted therapy by their treating physician. And, and just for more numbers, um, it noted that this was a fair representation. 86.7% um, had advanced disease and 85% were treated in the community setting, which will, I got another question we'll get there in a minute. Now, it's one thing for a physician to actually do NGS testing to find the mutations. And there is data to suggest that this is not being done routinely, but there are cases where a patient is profiled, got the results, and the treating physician didn't seem to act on the information. What are some of the challenges that you see or you hear about why physicians who do the testing and find the mutations don't prescribe the targeted therapies? Uh, well, I think one of the big issues is turnaround time. And in some real-world data, the, the actual time may be in the range of at least three weeks, sometimes four weeks. I think that is a real challenge. Uh, and I think that many uh, oncologists in the community feel a time pressure uh, more acutely than uh, many academic oncologists do. I think that uh, looking at uh, some survey results that I've done, looking at, at patterns for uh, for uh, for their academic oncologists versus general oncologists, uh, we've I'm seeing that uh, the community oncologists really feel like they need to get results in and start a treatment sooner than uh, some of the academic folks do, and I think it may be just because the the uh, specialists in thoracic oncology can reassure the patients more easily and with with more. Uh, certainty that it's okay to wait a couple of weeks and, in fact, really important to wait on having all of the data and that you want to start the best treatment rather than just start the, the, the most uh, rapid treatment. So uh, the fact is that I think many community oncologists and to a lesser extent academic oncologists feel that we really need to get those results back within a couple of weeks. Uh, so I think that's part of it, but at the same time, there is uh, a clamoring for certainly immunotherapy. People see the commercials on TV. A lot of the media discussion is about the miracle of immunotherapy for so many patients, and it is great for some patients, but it's not the right tool for the job 
in patients with these driver mutations uh, by and large. And I think that one of the issues is we can't lump all of these patients with driver mutations as the same population. But so I think that patients are eager to get uh, immunotherapy very often based on what they've heard. And uh, there are uh, certainly anecdotal reports from many people uh, that I speak with about uh, about the oncologist saying, well, you've got an EGFR mutation and there's a great pill for that. And them saying, I don't want that. I want the immunotherapy I saw in the commercial. And uh, so mm-hmm. there's some education to do there. There are certainly challenges with, with payment. Um, and I'm talking more about uh, the cost of, of these things and uh, that oral drugs uh, may have co-pays that are just uh, challenging, if not prohibitive, and may require uh, working through various uh, charitable funds for assistance or uh, or trying to get a free drug or a copay uh, assistance program. So these are all kind of friction in the system when it is uh, usually quite straightforward to prescribe an IV therapy that is the general standard of care for a broad population and just get that started in the next week. Yeah. So, I mean, you point to some things that are beyond simple interpretation. So, I mean, there's other limitations that can cause a patient not to get a targeted therapy, even though they may be, you know, have an aberration that qualifies them for one. Well, I think that one of the other troubling findings is that, as you mentioned in the Singal paper from JAMA that uh, that described this, though it didn't really feature it, it, it was almost buried there in the in the, re- in the results, but but really didn't get any meaningful discussion in the paper itself, nor the accompanying editorial. Um, these patients didn't get the targeted therapy ever, it seems, not just they didn't get it first. It would have been optimal and an appropriate standard of care for patients to get an EGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitor or an ALK inhibitor uh, up front. But that, not just did that not happen, but it seemed that about one-third of those patients with an EGFR mutation or ALK rearrangement just never got these profoundly effective therapies. And these are patients who we know had the mutation. So it raises the question of whether the delays may have been uh, an issue where the, the results came in when the patient is on their late in their first cycle or in their second cycle of chemoimmunotherapy or immunotherapy alone, and the results come in and get buried and forgotten. I, I think that uh, some of this is, is almost inexplicably bad, except that there was actually also a uh, presentation of a a poster at ASCO by Drs. Gearman and colleagues that was abstract 1585 for people who want to look it up. But it looked at uh, a large database of over 1,200 patients with stage 3B or 4 uh, advanced non-small cell lung cancer and looked at the testing rates and then uh, – and then – the actual administration of targeted therapies in over 1,200 uh, patients from from five community-based practices in, a, in this database. And it, it showed that the testing topped out at 54% for EGFR, wow. uh, but 
it dropped from there, and only 22% of the patients got all four of the treatments that are clearly recommended uh, in the NCCN guidelines and have strong data and an FDA-approved agent to go with them, namely EGFR, ALK, ROS1, and BRAF V600E. Then if you add three others, RET, MET, HER2, that are also listed in the uh, guidelines as uh, emerging therapies and do have data, if not uh, as strong as these others, only 7% of the patients that uh, in that large sample got all of those uh, tested. And then again, a, a disturbing proportion of the patients never got treatment uh, with the targeted therapy, even when the mutations were found. So it really corroborates what was seen in the JAMA article and suggests that uh, this is real. And we just are doing a very poor job of executing uh, once you do testing and even getting the testing done is also a shortfall. So for all of the promise that we have with precision medicine and molecular oncology for transforming outcomes for many of our patients, we aren't getting the job done in getting this information out or getting the required interventions completed properly in the broader community. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're talking about that number of physicians who actually do order the testing, but there's still a contingency of physicians out there that may not be sold on molecular profiling or differing views on how and when to use NGS profiling. Um, you know, what are you hearing from some of your peers? I know that you're a leader um, in using these, but we, we talked about before we came on, um, those who are, you know, espouse the virtues of of molecular profiling, and it's their favorite condiment. You know, it should be for everybody, uh, versus those who will only do it in um, maybe a third or you know refractory setting. Now, what are you hearing about some of the unreadiness that that some of physicians may have? Well, I, I think we should acknowledge that we don't know that it is clearly critical for it to be done in everybody. And I, I wouldn't say that 100% testing should be considered the unequivocal gold standard because these studies that include patients with squamous histology uh, may we, – we don't have guidelines or evidence to say that NGS is clearly – high value and in, in these patients. Now, I think that is only likely to change and become more broadly useful for broad testing once we have treatments that target even uh, things like KRAS, uh, G12C, which now has some data from ASCO 2019 that there may even be an effective therapy for this group. Uh, but, but I wouldn't say that it necessarily should be 100% testing in everybody, but for patients who have tissue available, we shouldn't be cherry picking just based on never smokers or minimal smoking status, that you definitely can find uh, many patients with relevant uh, driver mutations who have, uh, who have uh, some smoking history and uh, just anything within the range of non-squamous and some patients with squamous histology. So 
I, I think that one of the real objections is the turnaround time that I mentioned. That should only get better. But I think that one of the real challenges is that there can often be a delay of several days or a week or even more from the time an oncologist makes a, 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 a request that the pathology department sends out material to foundation or whatever outside lab and when the pathology department actually uh, sends that off. And and so that, that needs to be tightened up. That's a delay that just uh, becomes a critical problem because as uh, as the the labs get better about shortening that turnaround time, they still can't account for the delay of a week in actually getting the the tissue. Right. There are issues with tissue collection, and and I think the further you are from the bigger centers, the academic centers, the more scant tissue often is. And I think that is a limitation that can potentially be overcome increasingly by doing uh, serum-based tests that uh, or plasma-based tests that, uh, you know, we have uh, more data from Gardent uh, that has come out and, and there are other molecular oncology or, or blood-based labs that are are uh, looking at this. There's increasing data that even if the sensitivity is not uh, as high as tissue-based testing, uh, particularly for patients who have a lower tumor burden in their body, uh, this is still uh, potentially going to be a uh, rapid turnaround and, and pretty good yield. And you can definitely trust a positive result if you get a result from the plasma testing that shows an EGFR mutation that is as reliable as a tissue-based result, and you can treat based on that and expect very comparable outcomes. So uh, there are some challenges to overcome, uh, but I also think that one of the biggest issues has been, well, do I need to send off a broad test uh, for NGS panel if I'm really just looking for EGFR or EGFR and ALK? But I think nowadays when there's at least four and now uh, more accurately six, seven, eight targets that we have treatments for right now that look extremely good or, or mm-hmm. are imminently approved, uh, you know, once you get past five, six, seven, it doesn't make sense to do individual testing uh, when you add up those costs, when you add up the time and the tissue required to do all those tests serially, just doing a broad panel makes more sense. And I think that that's where things are going to go and should go, that it, we should uh, we should anticipate that we will all want to be doing broader panels, at least in the setting of advanced non-small cell and other settings where there's more than two or three uh, targets that are worth knowing about. Yeah, so you're 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 in that area where you just led me into my my next thought, and that is when you look at physicians who who are pro uh, profiling, they 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 have this as a part of their protein practice. There seems to be two different paradigms where there are some advocates that they want the broad-based molecular profile and their, their perspective may be, well, you can't find these aberrations if you don't look for them. You know, for instance, a year ago, it was Intract, even though we didn't have an FDA-approved therapy. They wanted to profile every patient to see if they were in that 1% that maybe had that, that Intract fusion. 
And then there are those who say, well, we only need maybe 10 genes to manage the lifetime of a given patient. Um, you know, it's a broad spectrum, but, you know, kind of where are the benefits and the pitfalls? You know, you spoke to some of them just a second ago, but what are the benefits and maybe pitfalls uh, that clinicians and patients should be aware of when considering those two different paradigms? I think the biggest pitfall for NGS testing is the turnaround time required that, uh, if I have a patient who is uh, a never smoker with an adenocarcinoma or uh, has a minimal smoking history and uh, particularly has a high tumor burden, very symptomatic, I may really uh, hope to get a quick answer about the highest yield things like EGFR and ALK. And you can do a one-off ad hoc test for EGFR mutation or ALK rearrangement and get those results back within a matter of a couple or three, four days instead of a couple of weeks for NGS testing. So when time is really critical, I would say that uh, the individual tests will have a shorter turnaround time. But in, in fact, that's really a minority of patients who have a clear dire need to start treatment within the week rather than uh, two to three weeks later. And so I think that if we all take a sober look and really assess how urgent it really is, uh, in most cases, it's better to just take the time to uh, get a full panel of results back and make the best decision in the light of day rather than just scramble. So turnaround time is one. Uh, there are questions about whether, you know, it would be more efficient to just test for two or three or four things up front, particularly if you find them and then don't need to look for other things. That may be more cost effective, but I, I think that the the issue of the economy of tissue is also a really important uh, factor now. And so we want to be as efficient as possible with the tissue available, and that tends to favor uh, NGS testing. And that's with tissue, of course. With plasma, you can do that without exhausting uh, tissue. Um, and then, but I would say uh, that looking just for what is relevant the day the patient is diagnosed is is pretty limiting. And uh, though it is growing uh, all the time, uh, the, we don't know what will be valuable in six or 12 months. And uh, for instance, at ASCO 2019, we saw sensational data for uh, various uh, MET exon 14 inhibitors, you know, capmatinib mm -hmm. and topotinib. We saw very strong data with blue 667 for uh, patients with red fusions. Uh, and and uh, this is uh, on top of data we've already seen in LOXO 292 in the same population. So these are all agents that I hope and expect are going to be commercially available in the, in the near future. And I would love to know that uh, my patient has this uh, in advance uh, so that I can prescribe these agents, whether on an expanded access or commercially available basis as soon as possible. And, uh, and then there's even things like, you know, Exxon 20, we have more data 
uh, on that that uh, has looked really good with TAC uh, 788 and Poseotnib has also uh, uh, looked uh, strong in the past. These agents have some toxicity issues, but there's new targets. And I already mentioned KRAS G12C, which has only shown early data, but you know, that, that is not today an actionable mutation. But if I had access to a clinical trial with AMG 510 that was just presented at ASCO for this KRAS mutation that's seen in 13% of non-small cell, not a small trivial amount, uh, I would hope to have my patient get the opportunity to pursue that. And, uh, and there's potentially going to be a lot of other targets out there that would be worth uh, knowing are relevant for your patients. So I would cast a wider net now. This is not the view I had three or four years ago, but we are further down the road. And I would say that there are enough targets that it just makes sense to look more broadly today. You've been listening to part one with Dr. Jack West from City of Hope. Be on the lookout for part two with Dr. West, where we discuss bridging the gap between academic and community oncology settings for better precision medicine outcomes. We hope you'll tune in. You've been listening to the Precision Medicine Podcast, sponsored by Trapello. Trapello is the first clinical decision support tool to align the interests of oncologists, labs, and payers to give patients the best chance at beating cancer. To learn more, visit gettrapello.com. To subscribe to the podcast or download transcripts of any episode, visit precisionmedicinepodcast.com. We invite you to join the conversation on social media. You can find us on Twitter at PMP by Trapello or on LinkedIn at the Intervention Insights company page. If you know someone who would enjoy the Precision Medicine Podcast, please share it. They'll thank you, and so will we. We hope you'll tune in for the next episode. Mm-hmm.